It's Wednesday, mates. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, loves. Today, I want to share what I learned during an incredibly powerful week-long therapy intensive last fall which when I've shared it with other friends since has been incredibly powerful for them and having their own ahas. So I'm confident that is going to be helpful to a lot of people today because it's something that so far I believe applies to every person. So the kind of therapy I did in the fall was called EMDR. It was incredible. I did a five-day intensive where I was going every day for a couple of hours with the same therapist. And I can't say if it's because it was that kind of therapy or the specific therapist I had, um, though I've had multiple other people that have talked about the value of EMDR for them, as well as people who've talked about the value of a specific therapist. But I'm always super cautious to not say, this is the answer, the thing, you must go out and do this. But I would say my number one takeaway here is therapy is powerful. Some therapy is more powerful than others, but go and go in with hope and optimism. And if it's not awesome, keep looking because it's like dating or friendship. Don't settle. Sometimes you have to try a few things to find the one that works for you. But specifically, some of the core tenets of EMDR, as I understand it as a layman, are what I'm going to touch on today. So if this really resonates with you, that might be something for you to look into more. But I am not a doctor or a trained therapist, so I'm going to describe things today in my own layman's terms as I go on. So I first started going to therapy maybe 10 years ago. I went to one woman a few times. She was fine. I went to a great older man for maybe a year. That was incredibly helpful. Went to another woman for maybe a year and it was it was lightly helpful. Like I would always have some good insights and good clarity, but I think I was just at a point in my healing journey where I was looking for something more. Like I felt like we were dealing with little slivers and they were painful and annoying and needed to be dealt with, but I had a feeling there was something deeper that I wasn't getting at. Not like any hidden deep dark secret I was repressing, but I guess I just didn't know if this was the most powerful thing I could be doing, but I didn't know what else there would be. And I also have been to a psychiatrist a handful of times when I tried anxiety medication uh, two different times, and I loved her. Uh, she would always say to me, you're really good at this. You get this. I feel like you're going to be a therapist one day. And I was like, Meh, maybe I'll just host the podcast instead <laughs> and keep my day job. But those psychiatry sessions weren't deep ongoing sessions. I'd see her once and then, you know, go back four months later. So my point in sharing this is to illustrate I'd gone to therapy for years to various people with different focuses. And the joke of therapy is that you're going to talk about your childhood, right? That you're going to talk about how your parents messed you up. Well, that was never really what therapy was about to me. Like, my parents are married. They were happy together. They told us they loved us. They hugged us. They came to all my dance performances. Uh, yeah, that's it. So I would kind of rattle that off and people would shrug and move on. Like, okay, well, we're not here to work through your childhood. Until I did this week-long EMDR intensive. And after 90 minutes on day one, she explained my childhood to me in a way that I had never seen before. And it explained everything. Like challenges I'd had with my family, some of my most painful seasons, why I have anxiety that I continue to struggle with today. 
and ultimately gave me a lens to have more peace and forgiveness for how things were and how they are, myself and other people. And in sharing this with friends since and hearing other people's stories, it's explained to them where their perfectionism or people-pleasing or whatever challenge you have not just comes from, but what you can do to heal it. And what I became to believe after that week was, I think there's two kinds of trauma. And I'm pretty sure we all have one. So capital T trauma, I describe this as if you weren't aware already of it, you realized it when you got to college and you started talking with other people about what your life had been like up until that point. So Maybe you already knew that being sexually abused by your uncle was not okay. You knew you would experience trauma. But maybe you didn't realize that not all dads drink the way your dad did. Once other people started talking, you kind of sort of started to pick up. I don't think all dads are that drunk all the time. Huh, maybe my dad was an alcoholic and just no one ever used that language. Maybe you knew that losing your sister to an accident or your mom to cancer was a trauma that not everyone had gone through. You are aware you experienced a capital T trauma. But maybe you didn't realize until you got to college that not all moms are as competitive with their daughters as your yours was. That's the only experience you have. But you now started talking to other you know, young adults about their childhood and realize, oh, maybe this isn't quite the experience everyone has. Maybe I had a more extreme experience. So I think capital T trauma, this is just my word for it, is really obvious when it happens. Abuse, addiction, death, or you realize it once you start listening to other people. You get out of your house and you start sharing more with young adult peers that like, oh, maybe that's not how everyone's family works. But I believe that all of us, or at least every adult I've had any in-depth conversation with, has what I call lower T trauma. It doesn't come up when you tell your story because your story isn't dramatic. It's pretty, quote unquote, normal. But imagine, and I'm going to use examples here that aren't my story. My story is not any more dramatic than these stories. Uh, It just involves my family, and I'm not going to share their story here. So I'm going to use other examples from people in my life. But I'll tell this as though it's me. So imagine that in that EMDR session that fall, I say, I have an older brother and he was really challenging. Um, he just he had drug issues and just a lot of problems and you know, he would be caught stealing. And um, so I guess I just tried not to cause my parents any problems. It was like mostly my my childhood. Um Like, I remember one time I was maybe around 10 or 11, and I was being bullied at school. And these girls were my friends. And then, I don't know, all of a sudden, this girl, Lindsay, decided that she didn't like me. And the group followed and just turned on me. And I stayed quiet about it probably for a few weeks. Like, I I, I didn't want to tell my parents. I didn't, you know, want to cause a problem. But this one day... um, I came home and I just burst into tears and my mom just snapped at me. And I I didn't know that um, my brother had been arrested uh, that that afternoon. And my mom was just beside herself with that. And so she just screamed at me like, I don't remember exactly what, but something like, you know, I can't handle one more thing today. Calm down. 
So if you heard someone share that story, we would all say today, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That had to be so hard. Like, we all know that that's not okay, obviously. Like, you were going through something and you didn't feel like you could bring it to your parents. And then when you finally did bring it to them, you got incredibly shut down and made to feel like you were the less important child um, or that someone else hurting you was now causing problems for other people. Like somehow it was your fault. So well, what came out of it for me in my session was, let's say in this example, um, you know, where I, this, this person was around 10 or 12. I can picture one of my my best friends in real life, um, their daughter, Isabel. She's around that same age. And she is the sweetest. She is so cuddly and kind. And if I could imagine her having those parents when her heart was so hurt by these girls at school that she thought were her friends and she felt so alone and rejected and disliked. And then she went to the person that was supposed to love her unconditionally, to her mom, to always make her feel better. And she was told that she didn't have time, that she was an inconvenience, a burden, that her her pain was overreacting. And then she grows up and now she's me. She's you. She's an adult. And they say that 95% of our daily thoughts are subconscious. 95% of our daily thoughts are subconscious. So what does that really mean? It means that when someone sends you a text message and you feel a quick flash of, wait, are they mad at me? That's coming from a thought you aren't even aware you're having 95% of the time. When your roommate or your husband leaves a box out that you trip over, instead of laughing, you get a flash of anger so irrational. That's coming from a thought so hardwired that you're used to it. You don't even notice what it is or question where it comes from or Notice it because it happens so quickly and subconsciously. Think about all the thoughts that you are aware of in your day. I had a thought this morning that I should get out of bed and not hit snooze because I didn't want to be late to record my podcast. I had a thought to check the weather. I had a thought about what outfit to put on for the weather. I had a thought about what I would order at the cafe for breakfast. I had a thought about which elevator bank is it again that I need to take to get up to the podcast studio. I can recall so many conscious thoughts that I did have today so far, and that was only 5% of what was happening in my brain. (laughs) Like, whoa, when you start to realize that, it's like there is a whole human inside of you that you are not really in conversation with, and they are basically in control of everything that you do and think and say and how you react and act and how you feel how you show up in the world. It's kind of wild. So this approach to psychology says that in the subconscious, in that 95%, is stuck that 10-year-old little girl, little Isabel. Picturing this sweet, blonde, round-faced little friend of mine, and maybe you can picture someone in your life around that age. Maybe you have a niece or a nephew or a friend's child And you can just picture that innocence and how much you would want to protect them. So when a friend tells you that you did something to disappoint them, that 10-year-old you flares up just like any 10-year-old would and screams, I am allowed to make mistakes. Stop yelling at me. I have feelings too. Which is totally understandable for that 10-year-old, right? And especially for a 10-year-old that 
got the message from her mom again and again and again that subconsciously, you know, uh, literally or more in a um, in a subversive way that she can't make mistakes because the brother's already making all the mistakes or she can't speak up about her feelings because her feelings are a burden. And so then suddenly she just breaks and she's like, I am allowed to make mistakes. I have feelings too. Totally understandable for a 10-year-old. But on the outside, you are a 31-year-old woman who is now screaming at your friend and both of you are thinking, um, this seems like a totally unnecessary and immature overreaction. <laughs> and it is immature because it's the reaction of a 10-year-old and you are 31 or whatever age you are. But she's in your subconscious. And 95% of the time, that's where you're reacting from, from a hurt, lonely, abandoned, scared 10-year-old girl. And I don't know about for you, but for me, this felt like, whoa, yeah, there are times when I'm really disappointed in how I act because I feel like I was just so immature. It was so beneath who I am and who I want to be. I don't feel like I'm showing up as the mature, with it, emotionally healthy, responsible for her own emotions and actions woman that I know logically on the outside I am. And yes, it's like I don't even have control over it. Like it just comes out. And one minute or one hour later, I'm embarrassed. Like, why did I act like a child throwing a temper tantrum to that customer service person or my husband or my colleague? So this approach to therapy would say it's because you were controlled by that wounded 10-year-old part of yourself that needs to be healed. She needs to be reparented. And you now as an adult, the adult you, you now are the parent that little Isabel has a core belief that people don't care about her feelings, that she doesn't matter, that she's a burden. But you can reassure her that you care about her feelings. You're here. You're listening. That reality can change. And the more you acknowledge her and talk with her, calm her, reassure her, the more in dialogue you are with her, the less her childhood fear affects you as an adult who is now trying to be a perfectionist or a people pleaser, whatever that 10-year-old girl would grow up to become. You can help her heal and grow up so that your subconscious is more calm, settled, healthier, so that the adult you is operating and reacting from a healthier place too. You can change the core belief that that little 10-year-old has and help her discover the truth. So for me, what was so powerful is I have a niece who is six. And the two main stories that came up for me when I was with this therapist, I was around that age, like maybe seven, maybe 10. But when I pictured myself in those scenarios, it didn't seem that upsetting because I'd already lived through it. So I'd kind of gotten used to the memory. You know, like you, you've already thought through it. You're not, not all the time, but it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, that's yeah, that's from decades ago. Like, I'm familiar with that story. It's not shocking to me. I'm not hearing it for the first time. But when I pictured my niece in that same situation, then the, the scenario became new. 
It was like happening in her house with her parents, picturing her. And it was like, oh, my gosh, that would not be okay if that was what was happening to her. So while I am not a therapist and this is not therapy and actual therapy will be way more effective and you should go, let's all think for a minute about what your story was. So here's some other examples of people in my life. So my my dad was in politics and there was a lot of pressure to be the perfect family. Everyone in town knew who we were, so you couldn't get into a fight or have a meltdown like, you know, in a restaurant or at the grocery store because someone could hear at any time. And I remember this one time we were having some sort of event over at our house and a friend and I were in my room and playing. And I guess we were getting really loud. Like we were just having a really good time. And I don't remember what we were playing, but I was going to be eight or so. And my mom flung open the door with such a look of rage on her face because I guess they'd been able to hear us in the living room. And her face was so angry. I just remember like my stomach went cold and she told me, do not make a sound. And when your father is done, you will be getting a serious spanking. And then she left. And I was just so ashamed in front of my friend that not only had I been yelled at, but she knew that I was going to get a spanking. Like It just made me feel as though like right now I'm just like standing here naked. <laughs> it just felt so ashamed. And I guess we just sat there not really playing um, till she could go home. And then I don't remember her coming over to play again, I don't think. Again, that's not my story. I'm just telling it in the first person. But you might only have a few of those stories where it wasn't like your parents hit you or there was abuse. You know, your dad was funny. He was the life of the party. Your mom was sweet and warm. But there was a few of them. Enough that you never knew when something you did, like laughing and playing with abandon, might be bad and might lead to you being shamed. So it makes sense that that girl grows up to have anxiety, to be afraid that something she could do, even if she thought it was just light and the right thing to be doing and it wasn't wrong or bad, it could be bad or wrong at any moment, right? She grows up to not trust herself or she tries to be really perfect so that nothing that jarring can happen or really perfect so she's never embarrassed in front of other people. For Another friend, it was their dad never said, I love you. But their childhood was pretty great, like nothing to really go to therapy about, right? But 95% of your thoughts and responses are coming from a seven-year-old girl, a boy if you're a boy listening, but let's just say girl, from a seven-year-old girl who's not sure that she's loved because she never heard it from her dad, who's always trying to do enough be good enough, be worthy of love. So on the outside, you have a grown woman who is striving, achieving, hustling, running so hard, trying to earn love from their boss or the world, not even from her dad anymore. And so I picture it like I have this little me. She was like literally a shrunken little person. Um, And she's in a pouch like a kangaroo because for me, my anxiety is in my stomach. So she just sort of visually lives there. And when she panics, as any seven-year-old would when whatever my personal triggers are happen, I kind of hold her, soothe her, remind her that it's okay. 
I'm here. We're safe. And that hasn't healed everything, but it's absolutely helped. I'm certainly still working on this, but it was an incredible breakthrough. It helps me explain why I react the way I do and know that it's something about myself that I can change. It gives me the clarity to realize that there is a core belief, a core fear inside of me that is based on an old experience I had that was never processed. I didn't go to therapy. I didn't have these emotionally evolved parents that talked about it. So as my therapist explained, it's stuck in there. And yet I can get it unstuck by processing it now. It's not too late. It makes it clear that when I'm not acting the way I want to, I'm acting like a child, like that stuck part of me. And it gives me a specific visual of this little girl to calm and help heal. It gives me empathy for her rather than feeling disappointed in myself as an adult for how I acted today. I can have empathy for that younger girl. And and it makes me want to keep learning about her and myself and that subconscious 95% so they can become more integrated. Because the, whoa, why the heck did I act like that? That comes when there's a jarring break between the conscious and the subconscious is the way it's been explained to me. I think of it like flipping a light switch. It is jarring for me to flip to those two because I feel out of control. Like, whoa, where did that come from? Like that 95% just snuck up on me. I was thinking that I was fully in control, but I'm actually only nine, only 5% in control. And man, the lights just went on. So what I've been taught is the more you explore and hang out with that subconscious, the more integrated they become, more like a dimmer light switch where it can be more of a fade and you become more in control. You open up the communication between those parts of yourselves so you don't sneak up on yourself. You reparent that younger part of yourself to raise the health and maturity of your subconscious so that you show up today more like the healthy adult that you want to be. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel uh, a little emotionally exhausted um, so far, just from talking about this. And those weren't even my stories that I was sharing, but I just have a really good imagination and I do have my own stories so I can physically feel in my body being that seven or 10 year old. She went through some really painful things. And even though they only happened a few times, they hurt. And just because they weren't capital T trauma, they weren't horror stories for anyone else, but they were still painful. They were still things that we wish that a child ideally wouldn't have to go through. And unless that younger person had great therapy or super emotionally evolved parents, it was just never dealt with to process and to heal. So then you had a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old trying to make sense of what happened. And what I've been taught is that at that age, we know we are not okay on our own. You know, when you threaten to run away from home, but you don't actually go through with it, it's because you know you actually can't take care of yourself. You know that you need other people. You need your parents to keep you safe, that, that we logically know that. And therefore, when our parents or our authority figures or even our friends act a certain way, what I've been taught is that we can't make it mean 
that they are wrong or bad or unsafe because we need them. So we make it mean that we are wrong or bad or unsafe. We make it mean something about ourselves that becomes a core belief. And now, fast forward 20, 40, 60 years later, you now are an adult who is walking around believing what you told yourself at age 7 or 10, which was, I should just be quiet about my emotions. I'm not sure if I'm lovable enough. Maybe if I work hard, then I will be lovable. Maybe if I stay pretty or talented, I will be loved for being those things. Whatever it was, you came up with something, some sort of coping mechanism to stay safe, to survive, that was about what you could control because you couldn't control your parents or your authority figures or you know the, the adults in your life or your friends. So the good news is, number one, you're not alone. I think we all have these experiences. And number two, your, quote, lower T trauma is valid. The good news is that you can and should heal from this. I would also say good news number three is if you're a parent or want someday to become a parent, I think we're all going to do this at some point to our children. One of my friends, after I had this therapy in the fall, said, does this panic you about messing up your own children? Because like you had a great childhood and I'm listening to you being like, oh, crap, I don't know if I could do it any better than her parents did. And then here she's going to therapy as an adult. And I was like, eh, I mean, Obama and Oprah had far from perfect childhoods and they turned out pretty prolific. So I think everyone has and everyone from, can heal from this. I think it's just whether you do process and heal so if we're all learning this, every one of you who is listening to this podcast, then if and when we have kids, I think they'll turn out okay because we've done this work and we're aware that they will need to. So they'll get it earlier and get it along the way. And good news number four is you can start now. Even without therapy or a therapist, um, this would be my totally non-doctor's advice on how to start. So step number one, think back to any upsetting instances in your childhood. Maybe for you, it's just the first one that comes up. Maybe there's something right there. Or maybe you start to jot down a whole list. You just brain dump it out. You got in trouble for this. You got in a fight or got rejected here. You got teased for that. I will say this EMDR therapy, one of the things that it's been explained to me that it does is help for those stuck memories to become unstuck. And it's not, again, that they're like these deep, dark, repressed memories, but it may be just something you don't really think about. I think, I mean, this, I, I just don't really know. The stories that kind of came up for me the most, would they have come out when I did this brain dump? Maybe. Um, or maybe that is the value of this specific technique where it gets the, the right and left sides of your brain through this... Um, bilateral eye movement <laughs> that you're doing um, throughout this. It's like it's a form of hypnosis, but you're awake. Anyways, um, that it gets those parts of the brain to communicate so that you find those stuck things. But I think for today, you can just think of what is the first thing that comes to mind or what if I sit down and brain dump out a list, what comes out? I've also been taught that the ego wants to be normal. So we don't want to find these things. The, the the brain, our mind, is not like, oh, yes, 
Hillary, this exercise is going to feel amazing. I can't wait to sit down and write out all the times that I felt weak and unsafe and rejected. And I really want to visit all of those things. So our mind is going to resist this. And this is we've talked a lot on this podcast already about why we resist change. This is one of those other ways. We would rather it would be safer for our mind to be like, actually, I didn't really have any of those things. I don't really have anything come up. But I think the reality is that we all do have those things. So number one, we come up with some instance or multiple instances. Number two, I would recommend, this is just what really worked for me, imagine someone in your life around that age, someone that you love who is young and trying their best and they are precious and you would hate for these things to happen for them, for them to get bullied or yelled at or any of that. Ultimately, you're imagining you, but for me, having my niece really helped make this more intense because I could go outside of myself and see those experiences brand new and happening for her. The first time, actually, I realized this, a few years ago, I was living in an apartment with a bug issue, and it was really traumatic, and I tried going to a hypnotherapist. The guy was crazy. I'm not saying hypnotherapists are crazy. This guy was crazy, which is a story for another time, but... The only thing that I took out of it was that um, he had me work on picturing my niece in this scenario and how I would act. And I realized that if she was present and the bug was there, I would not go, oh, my gosh. I would stay calm and I'd be like, it's okay. You're bigger than the bug. He's scared of you. You can run faster than him. And it taught me what came back up in EMDR, which was me acting as the adult to the younger child part of myself. The child part of myself wants to freak out over the bug, but in the presence of an actual child, I hold my ish together and act like the adult. So therefore, I can make the same choice when it is just me in my apartment by myself. And I can either freak out like the child or I can stay calm like the adult. So that proved to be really helpful for me. And another instance where I saw this, I watched the Finding Neverland docuseries um, and the follow-up Oprah special. And the two men in that that share their stories of um, being abused by Michael Jackson, which is less about Michael Jackson and really just more about understanding how abuse happens and um, and why those who've been abused stay silent or sort of deny it to themselves. And for one of the men, Wade Robson, he shares that the real turning point for him after denying that this had happened for years was when he had his own son. And when his own son got to be old enough to around toddler age, which is not as young as as he had met Michael, but he started to be able to see himself in his son and picture that happening to his son, that is when it hit him. Oh, my God, this was not okay. Like, it, it is horrifying what happened to me because now I can see it in this other child. And the other man that came forward shared something similar. It, too, for him was once he had children, he was able to picture if that happened to my child, I can see that that wouldn't be okay. But when it was happening to me, I justified it and I had all of these other stories and I made it about about me. And, uh, you know, again, I needed to see Michael as good and a friend and a protector. So I made it all about me. And now I can look at a young child and think that child is not responsible for what's happening to them. They're they're six years old. They're 10 years old. Oh, my goodness, that is not reality. So number three is ask that little person, whether it is your niece or yourself, that little you, what they're thinking and feeling in those instances. Like, 
Uh, you know, how did it make you feel? What's the thought that you're having in that moment? I'm I'm not important that no one likes me, that I never know what I'll get yelled at again. Again, we need our parents or our friends, so we keep ourselves safe by thinking it must be me. So what's coming up in those moments is always going to be a judgment about yourself and your worth. But now you can see it was not about the child. It was about the adult. You can ask that child, you can look at that age and think, how did you survive? How did you protect yourself? You tried or you thought, if I do X, I'll be valuable or worthy or safe. So I will stay thin or get good grades or sleep with any boy who likes me. But that action came out of some core belief that it was going to make you safe or worthy or protected if you did these things. Then number four, look at your life today and see how those same fears are present. How were they showing up in your romantic relationships, your friendships, your work, your body image? If you ask yourself, what parts of myself do I not love or do I not like? It's probably this part, this younger self. If I don't like that I am anxious and that shows up as someone who loses their temper, gets triggered and goes right to a reaction, well, if you go back to my past, the things that I experienced would make sense that that little girl grew up with anxiety. So the things that I dislike about my adult self now are actually the coping mechanisms or the the core beliefs or what came out of what happened to that little girl. And therefore, I can, again, reparent and calm and I can find out where those things came from. They aren't parts of my adult self that are simply weird or broken or I can't fix or I can't heal from or I'm just not a good person. I actually can go back and see where they came from. And then step five is to start reparenting that younger part of yourself, telling them that you are here now. You are the adult. You can keep you guys safe. You will never leave her. You think she's the coolest. You think she's beautiful. And reestablishing that relationship with yourself because you realize now, and oh, it's so heartbreaking to realize that we told ourselves these negative things about ourselves so young. Because again, we, we didn't want to believe that anyone around us was bad. So we told ourselves that we were bad. And now we're adult, successful you know, uh, human beings. And we still are telling ourselves these stories that we could look back at this child and be like, that's not, that's not fair that you're telling yourself that. But we've held on to them for so many years. And I would say bonus step, you might consider talking with someone else in your life. So after my therapy in the fall, I said to my sister, so I've been learning some things about our childhood and zero pressure, but I wondered if you would want to hear about those. And again, no worries if you're just like, nah, I'm good. Because I didn't want to force her to explore anything that she not might not be in the place that she wanted to. And also, I needed to be fine if she didn't. Like, I trusted my memories and my experiences. I didn't need her to validate them or affirm them. They weren't any less valid if she was like, I don't remember that. But it turned out it was helpful because she did remember really similar experiences. And it helped her, too, to then have this perspective. Or if there isn't someone that was right in that situation with you, just talk to a friend. Say to someone, hey, so I heard this podcast of Hillary's that really got me thinking, and I want to process some stuff. 
would you mind listening? Say this to your your spouse, to your best friend. I got so much more out of my therapy this fall because I was sharing it with friends. I had a few girlfriends that um, knew I was going through a really hard time, knew that I was going to this therapy. And so I was filling them in throughout the week and afterwards and going to coffee and saying it out loud helped me discover more, remember more about it, just helped it be more front of mind to think about it more often and remember, oh, yeah, I learned this. Therefore, I can do this and I can put it into action. So talk to me, baby. And uh, do talk to me if you are comfortable. Please come over to Instagram. I would genuinely uh, love to hear your story. If you're comfortable sharing it in the comments there, what came up for you, um, or even if it is months later and you take action from this episode, the change that it has. Um, If you have a follow-up question or um, a topic that you would love to hear covered, you can always leave it at hillaryrushford.com slash pod VIP. Today's topic was heavy, but it is actually about having more joy and peace. So I wish you a genuinely happy and empowered Wednesday, and I will see you next week. You're welcome in advance. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is my foot hammock. I mean, I had to keep this light after such a heavy episode today. If you fly on airplanes and are not especially tall, you are welcome in advance for this tip. Guys, a foot hammock changes everything. I will link to this if you just swipe up in the description to the one I got on Amazon. I think it's like 15 bucks or something. But it is this little thing that you unroll when you're on an airplane and you hook it around the tray table and the height is adjustable. And can you picture if you're on like a bar stool sitting at a restaurant and it doesn't have a rung on the bar stool and your legs are dangling and you kind of just instinctively keep trying to pull one leg up and you're like, oh, I wish I could rest this on something. Like I just kind of don't want my two legs at the same angle or I want to be able to just shift. Well, as a short person on an airplane, Oftentimes, your legs are just kind of like out in front of you. And seriously, it is so much more comfortable to your hip and your back to be able to have this thing to rest on. And you can kind of press on it and create different levels. Just trust me, it is going to be worth the investment. Jeremy, we got him one as well. He doesn't use his. He's closer to six foot. And I think that it doesn't make as much of a difference when you're tall. Um, So you can try it out. But what he does use is our other travel thing that we are nerdily obsessed with, which is our airplane infinity pillow. So you know how you have that neck pillow on an airplane? The reason those drive me batty is they're like so big and firm. And where do you put it? It like doesn't fit in your bag. And you're trying to put it around the handle, but then it like flips off. And I don't know. I just those things always annoyed me. I would buy them and then I would get annoyed traveling with them. So I wouldn't take them. But then you get a crick in your neck, whatever. So we got a infinity pillow. The reason it's so amazing is one, it's more squishy. And so you can just jam it into your carry on and like get it on in there. Also, it is easier because it makes this big figure eight loop to just wrap it around a handle, tie it in a knot. It just works functionally on your bags better. Then When you actually go to sleep on the plane, what I love about it is that you can put different positions. If you want to like double it up and create more of a cushion, if you want to slip your arm through it, it kind of gives you a little bit of leverage. You can wad it up as a pillow. So sometimes because I'm traveling, if I'm traveling with Jeremy, I'll just put it like on his shoulder between his shoulder and my head and it kind of creates a little thing. 
Guys, I'm just going to tell you that your hip flexors and your lower back and your neck will thank me. So now the important question is, where are you going to fly off to next on holiday to use these wonderful new tools that I have told you about. I am headed to France next. And if you have not seen one of my Instagram posts in a while, because you know the way the algorithm sometimes hides things, pop on over to at Hillary Rushford, like and comment on a few photos, and then you know that I will start to pop back up in your feed again. And you can be sure to then follow along on our adventures in Paris and the south of France very soon. Oh, and if you want a cheat sheet of the six steps that I walked through at the end of today's podcast episode, just swipe up on your podcast app and we have put those in the show notes below. You're welcome in advance. Till next Wednesday. 